I'm mesmerized by a photograph taken in 1934 of Paul Robeson and Sergei Eisenstein, the filmmaker, during Robeson's first visit to the Soviet Union. Right? This is a towering moment because you've got these two intense revolutionary artists meeting. And the photograph is, is, is a wonderful photograph and, and the, the energy that comes across is beautiful. It's very inspiring, I think, for any artist, uh, specifically those of us interested in a protest cinema or any kind of revolutionary cinema. Um, and those of us interested in figuring out how America and its political filmmaking has suffered um, at the hands of uh, neoliberalism, uh, the conservative and, and fascistic wing of Hollywood. Um, anyway, you can get caught up in that, but right now I just want to get caught up in this photograph and talk to you for a minute. Um, I lit a candle earlier and like a film reel running through a projector in my head, I sort of stare sometimes at the subtle dips and dives of uh, the shadows that the, the candle will flicker onto the wall, you know? And I lay on the floor in my room and I, I stare up at the ceiling and I watch the flickers above the candle dance above this photograph. Now the shadows on the wall remind me not of the perfunctory Plato's allegory of the cave because, see, in my cave, we are prisoners of truth. Reality is never far from us. If anything, I crave fantasy. But the flickers remind me of the feeling I had as a young artist. Right? The excitement I felt thinking about the plays I'd done and the films I hoped to one day see. Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman beautifully conceded that if theater was his wife, film was his mistress. In some way I could relate, maybe. I think for me and in my formative years um, while conceiving of a visual liberation cinema, it was... Art was definitely my wife, but it was activism that was my mistress. I, I could never seem to bridge them together uh, until I, I, I got into my early 20s. And then one day I just realized, well, it's quite possible to have all of your desires in one book. Speaking of books, I urge you to read John Titel's Art, Exile, and Outrage. It's about Julian Beck and Judith Molina's performance group, the Living Theater, and the extraordinary combination of Brecht and Artaud in American political theater. Now, last month, I mentioned three films, all quite different and, and none are prescriptions of a revolutionary cinema, but each are certainly radical in their own way and all a perfect example of visual liberation. Chameleon Street, Shadows, and Dog Day Afternoon. Now, I realized later why I mentioned these films. The Black Consciousness and the majestic kind of anarchism of Harris's masterpiece, Chameleon Street, coincided with my innate aesthetic connection to John Cassavetti's jazz-inspired uh, slice-of-life method-acting jam on uh, identity, race, art, and friendship. And Shadows is an extraordinary movie. 
But all these themes and ideas seem to coalesce for me in a passionate way simply by witnessing Al Pacino's diatribes against the system in Dogged Afternoon. I mention Titel's book because Judith Molina, the great theater director Judith Molina, plays Al Pacino's mother in the film. And she was a real-life mentor of sorts. Her presence in Dogged Afternoon underscores its revolutionary fervor. I mean, there's an almost organized um, uh, Artoian mood uh, in, in the film. Or, or, or for those of you who don't know what I mean, uh, there, there, there's an impulse to literally riot within the frames of that one movie, which is given to us by a Hollywood radical himself, Sidney Lumet. I find all of that fascinating, but let's get back to the candles. These little midnight gesticulations on my wall, they always make me think of my first awakening in 1992 when I had my trip to Moscow. I don't know why. Maybe it's because um, that's where I first smoked a cigarette and discovered when the glimmer of a candle had burned out one night that uh, Alexander Pushkin was a black man. And the statue of him in Moscow is a sight to see, ladies and gentlemen. And I realized that Jean Genet was a prophet of sorts on that trip. I had witnessed Roman Victuque's production of The Maids, and I instantly realized what theater of cruelty could be in a real practical sense. It was no longer just theory to me. But see what, 1992, uh, Bush Sr. is still president. I was 16 that Christmas, that December. That was the moment I discovered Paul Robeson, Eisenstein, and made sense of my own visit with my uh, acting colleagues from, from school uh, to the Moscow Art Theater. Now, American protest music and American protest cinema. If there is an American protest cinema, a wobbly cinema, if you will, what does that mean? What does political filmmaking in a left-wing sense really mean to you? Think about it. This is the heart of everything I believe in and everything that matters if we are to talk about protest art or political film or political art right now in this moment. Visual liberation exists for the creator and the receiver. You understand? The, the, the spectator and the author. But what does it really mean if I mention to you American protest music? Bob Dylan, uh, Johnny Cash, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Richie Havens, Odetta, Joan Baez, uh, Bessie Smith. You could go all the way back to Billie Holiday, whom one could argue made the first uh, protest pop record, right, with um, Strange Fruit. Well, what is the strange fruit of cinema? When I mention these musical artists, what do you think of in terms of a specific form of American movies? The aesthetic and the ideological foundation of a radical cinema is latent in Oscar Michoud, Charlie Chaplin, Shirley Clark, Menelik Shabazz, Franza Woods, Julie Dash, of course, Michael Romer, Melvin Van Peebles, uh, 
Pasolini, Robert Kramer, John Cassavetes even. Even though Cassavetes always insisted he was not a political revolutionary. But he is a revolutionary and he declared himself to be a revolutionary. That in and of itself is a, is a brilliantly radical self-declaration. Ivan Dixon. These filmmakers. Right? What, what, what's underneath them all? Paul Robeson. I mean, the spirit of Paul Robeson as, an, as a radical artist, right? Who insists that you have to be on one side of oppression or the other. The artist to Paul Robeson was a moralist who had to fight against abuse, poverty, genocide, rape, I mean, uh, uh, slavery, uh, you, you name it. Recently, Rosalie Gancy, an artist and publisher in Maryland, had shared on social media some lovely facsimiles of some of the uh, program announcements from 1954, I think, um, in support of Paul Robeson, right, who had just recently had uh, uh, lost his passport. You know, the, the, the State Department and the United States government took his passport. They withheld his passport because he was a staunch anti-fascist. And this supporting fundraiser, happily endorsed by Charlie Chaplin, um, and which featured a Calypso band <laughs> uh, in support of Paul Robeson. Um, it was interesting to see all of this. And in some way, um, it made me embarrassed at how the left have shrunk artistically and culturally in, 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 in the world of pop and in the underground or the fringes of cover culture, you know? I mean, one of the greatest performing artists of the 20th century and one of the towering figures of the left, as well, of, as well as one of its... One of the greatest performing artists of the 20th century and one of the towering figures of the left as well was also one of cinema's worst ambassadors, ironically. He was a prisoner of the white gaze while knowing full well and in the end that his revolutionary desires in cinema had been hijacked and betrayed by his trust and belief that most of the white people he did work with in film would enable what he wanted to do for the common man, the working man, especially the person of African descent. He never came off the way he wanted to in the movie. And there are exceptions. I mean, there are a few, like Oscar Michoud's Body and Soul, probably one of the only movies I can watch him in. Because there's such little freewheeling revolutionary spirit and dignity in many of the motion pictures he acted in, it's hard to watch him at all, frankly, on screen. I think it was Ruby Dee who lamented that she could never watch a movie Paul Robeson was in. And part of this reason is because it is a political and moral choice and a very, very um, personal choice to perform in front of a camera and or allow another human being to capture a part of you through a lens. I mean, think about it. In the movies, they call it a take. It's a take. It takes away something of you, right? Or it can. In photography, they even say, can I shoot you? You see what I mean? What are the moral, political, and personal implications in all of these decisions? 
All right, for a minute, consider what Paul Robeson was up against. Here you have a brilliant man, right? his tall, stately, athletic, brilliant human being. Um, he has this incredible voice. He was a wonderful stage actor, uh, an even better singer and orator, a remarkable writer, by the way, too. He was light years ahead of himself. And his vision was greater than anyone around him, and he was quite admired by Eisenstein, right? whom Robeson, in turn, had respect for. But you have to wonder, why didn't they work together? The forces that be will always make sure that highly talented, gifted, or brilliant people in any capacity never work together, collaborate, or commune. They will always try to separate them. And so I leave you now with this. On the willful ignorance of Andrei Tarkovsky. And so I leave you with this. On the willful ignorance of Andrei Tarkovsky. Mikhail Rahm, the Soviet film director and teacher who died in 1971, had made a, a movie called Dream in 1941. It was a movie about spiritual crisis and poverty. In fact, President Roosevelt, FDR, considered it one of the greatest films he had ever seen. I don't know what that really says, but in 1956, years later, Rahm's student, Andrei Tarkovsky, made his first film, The Killers. It was a student thesis movie, and it was based on uh, Hemingway's short story, The Killers. Rahm admonished Tarkovsky for having the lack of imagination and sensitivity for shamefully employing an actor in blackface in the movie. <sighs> it seems that white people have always had this struggle with how to express, capture, depict, illustrate, whatever word you want to use, black people in the moving image or in the image itself. What does that mean? I mean, this is Andrei Tarkovsky. No one has ever taken Tarkovsky to task about this. But I uh, supposedly, I was told when I was in Russia that Rahm had admonished Tarkovsky. He was really upset with him. Uh, Tarkovsky was studying Arabic, by the way, which is even stranger. And, and ironic, and apparently he had learned nothing about humanity, and Ram told him he had no imagination. And he decried that the young man had defiled the memory of the greatest Russian poet, Alexander Pushkin, who was black. Now, I want to see a movie that shows that, what I just said. That, that scenario. I want to see that scenario in a film. That's it. I think that would be an, a, a wonderful little movie. Anyway, the, the film is disappointing, uh, uh, The Killers, because it reveals the casual racism, of course, of the white world and, and, and the ignorance of Tarkovsky. But it's very telling and revealing that such an innocently racist young man would become a deeply compassionate and humane filmmaker a few years later. Did this incident affect Tarkovsky that deeply? One, you, have to, you really have to wonder about it, you know? 
because he flowered into this incredibly humane filmmaker. He himself, though, I don't think has ever written about this. Keep storming the barricades of your imagination. I need you. Good night.